Golda Meir was Israel's first and only female prime minister. Her tenure as prime minister from 1969 to 1974 coincided with several major threats to Israel, both at home and abroad. The most infamous was the Black September attack on the Israeli sports team at the 1972 Munich Olympics. Hello, and welcome to Decision Points. This season, we will tell the story of important Israeli and Arab leaders and their contributions to Israeli-Arab-American relations over the last 70 years. My name is David Murkowski, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow and the Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations at the Washington Institute. And I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. Golda Meir was born in Kiev in 1898, before her family immigrated to Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1906. She and her husband, Maid Aliyah, immigrated in 1921. They joined a kibbutz in the Jezreel Valley. Her time in the kibbutz was her start in official labor activities. This also marked the beginning of her political career. In the years leading up to statehood, she was a member of David Ben-Gurion's inner circle. She was only one of two women to sign Israel's Declaration of Independence in 1948. In the years following independence, she played a key role in Israel's foreign relations as Israel's first ambassador to the USSR and as foreign minister. Abi Iban, one of Israel's most influential diplomats, once described Meir as, quote, a tough lady with a domineering streak, end quote whose decision-making stemmed from the central issue of each problem. Golda Meir became prime minister and the leader of the Labor Party in 1969 after the death of Prime Minister Levi Eshkol. She wrote in her memoirs that when she was elected, she cried, in part because she knew she would, quote, have to make decisions every day that would affect the lives of millions of people, end quote. Now I can say I'm speaking for the ordinary man and woman in the street. For every worker in the factory, for every, for every doctor, for every professor, this is the struggle. This is the fight. And everything that makes Israel weaker, we are playing into the hands of the enemy. As prime minister, she secured the release of thousands of Soviet Jews via Vienna and reached an understanding with President Richard Nixon on Israel's nuclear program. She was a study of contrast. She had a toughness along with humor and a soft heart. She was shaped by a hybrid upbringing in Tsarist Russia and in the Midwest. She came from poverty, but felt at home with world leaders. She evolved from school teacher to kibbutznik to politician, finally becoming a tough on terror prime minister. One of the toughest tests she faced was the Munich massacre, which would change Israel's counterterrorism policy for decades to come. On the morning of September 5th, 1972, eight members of the Black September faction of the PLO, or the Palestine Liberation Organization, snuck into the Olympic Village in Munich and broke into several apartments, housing 11 athletes and coaches from the Israeli Olympics team. Black September was a militant faction of the PLO, named after the September 1970 Civil War to expel the PLO from Jordan. 
They had carried out several other high-profile terrorist attacks and plane hijackings in the months prior to the Munich Olympics. The terrorists killed two of the team's members almost immediately and kept the other nine as hostages. The terrorists demanded the release of over 200 Palestinians jailed in Israel, plus two leaders of the far-left German Red Army faction militant group. The Israelis, however, had a policy not to negotiate with terrorists. The Israeli hostages and the Arab commanders who have held them hostage for this entire day have now left, proceeded along a subterranean roadway underneath the Olympic Village and have gone to a makeshift helicopter pad at the back of the Olympic Village. After an abandoned German attempt to rescue the hostages, the terrorists demanded passage for them and the hostages to Cairo. The Germans told them they had arranged a flight from a nearby NATO base, but this was a setup for a final rescue attempt. As the hostages and terrorists arrived at the base via helicopter, miscommunication among the German police led to a botched operation. The leaders of the Black September team realized they were caught in a trap, opened fire on the hostages, and then blew up one of the helicopters with a hand grenade, killing all nine remaining hostages. German snipers fired back, killing five of the eight terrorists and capturing the remaining three. The image of massacred Jews anywhere, but especially on German soil, with the Holocaust as a recent memory, struck a nerve in Israel. Israel could not allow this massacre to set a precedent. In addition to bombing PLO sites, Golda Meir consulted with the cabinet and senior officials from the Mossad, Israel's foreign intelligence agency, and launched an operation to assassinate those perpetrators connected to Munich and others. Here to talk about Golda Meir is Francine Glagsbrun. Francine is the author of more than a dozen books. Her most recent book is Lioness, Golda Meir and the Nation of Israel. She'll be joining us from Manhattan. And we will also be interviewing from Tel Aviv, Ronan Bergman. I'm delighted to be joined by Francine Klagsbrunn. You write in the book that everyone called her Golda, and she called herself Golda, and that we shouldn't feel embarrassed about just calling her Golda, so I'm following your lead. You write about the contrasts and the paradoxes that come through. What can you say to our listeners that gives us more of a sense of her identity? She really was a bundle of contradictions in that sense. She was at the center of power with all these male leaders, David Ben-Gurion and so on. And yet she was different. She was a woman and they were all men. So she was an insider in a way, but she was also an outsider in that sense. And that shaped who she was and how she behaved. She never tried to be like one of the men. She never tried to be somebody whom she wasn't. She played up her grandmotherly characteristics, you know, whenever she was being interviewed, she would talk about her chicken soup recipe. But boy, she could be really tough when she needed to be. And she had to make very tough decisions. Was there like a decision-making process that she went through? One of her techniques was she would go around the room and get everybody's opinion on whatever decision it was. It was a social decision or a military decision or political decision. She would get all the opinions of everybody around the room. And then when she'd heard all their opinions, she would arrive at her own opinion. And that, of course, would be the policy that she followed. But she was open to listening to other people. As she prime minister, she relied very much on a man named Israel Galili, 
who was uh, very learned in terms of military things, politically savvy. So she knew when to turn to other people for help, but ultimately she used her own judgment. She was the one who met with King Abdullah twice in the 1947-1948 run-up period when the hope of the Zionist leadership was to keep Jordan out of the war. Very much so. That was a very important moment in her life and and in Israel's life. Unfortunately, it it didn't succeed in the end. Uh, She met with Abdullah twice. Now, he was kind of shocked that he was meeting with a woman. I mean, in his culture, that's not the kind of roles that women play. But then, you know, he accepted the idea. But the fact that she was the person that Ben-Gurion sent said a lot about Ben-Gurion's confidence in her. She spoke in a very straightforward way. This was the other thing about Golda. She was very straightforward with Abdullah. He understood what they wanted. He understood that it would be devastating for them and for him, as it turned out, to join in that war against Israel. So he came to respect her then. But I will tell you this, that later she was blamed. He asked them to put her off declaring a state. He said, what's your rush? Why are you doing this? And Golda said, a people that waited 2,000 years to declare their state doesn't sound like a rush to me. So she would not bend on that. And nor would anybody in Israel, nor would Ben-Gurion have given in. But afterwards, Abdullah said, had it not been a woman, had it been a man, he might have been more flexible. He might have given in and they would have put off declaring a state, which was untrue, really. But that was the thing about being the lone woman in that man's world. She had to be so careful. And even when she was, she would be blamed for things. If you had to define her greatest achievement and her greatest failure, what would they be? I'd say one of her greatest achievements was to create an alliance with the United States, between Israel and the United States, which today sounds, oh, yeah, we've always known that. But that wasn't the case back then. Eisenhower, who had been president, was not terribly sympathetic to Israel when he was president. Truman, yes, recognized Israel, but he was not a great close friend of Israel. And Golda cemented that relationship, both first with Kennedy and and then, of course, with Nixon. And that was so important to the young, young Israel, Israel in its youth at that time, to be aligned with the great power of the United States. Now, from her point of view, of course, her greatest achievement was the establishment of the state. She was one of the founders of the state. Ben-Gurion gets the most credit. But there she was right alongside him. And in her view, the state of Israel wasn't just a state for the people in Israel. After the Yom Kippur War, when she met with soldiers, she said, if you had fought just to rescue and to save us, people of Israel, I would say that that sacrifice was in vain, in a sense, was not not enough of a cause for a sacrifice. But if you recognize that what we, by saving Israel, by protecting Israel, we are protecting the Jews all over the world, it's worth any sacrifice. Her greatest failure came with the Yom Kippur War when Israel was taken by surprise. She's often blamed for that war, but she was advised by all her generals that there was a low possibility of war, that Syria would not attack Israel unless Egypt did, and Egypt would not attack unless it had gotten missiles from the Soviet Union, which it did not have yet. So she was constantly being reassured by her generals that there was no danger. And she listened to her generals. So in the end, one could say she 
have to make the final decision. That was a mistake. But who would not listen to your generals when, you know, they are the knowledgeable people? But from her point of view, the greatest failure because of that war was not making peace. She so wanted to make peace. And what was not known and only became known recently because of archives and documents being open is that she tried so hard. She met with Arab leaders. She met with Hussein, who was the grandson of Abdullah, more than 30 times trying to work out a peace solution, sending letters to Sadat to try to meet, but he ignored her. She met with the head of Romania, who said he was going to help, but he did not help. She really tried very hard to make peace. That was the goal of her life. And the fact that she did not do it, and to be honest, from her point of view, too, the fact that then Begin came into power, and he was the one who was able to meet with Sadat, I think it really tore her heart out. You write in the book something that I thought was very moving about, you know, the enduring trauma of the Yom Kippur War. And you said she's more loved outside Israel than within Israel. You wrote, quote, what had been regarded as conviction was branded as self-righteousness. What had been called firmness became inflexibility. It was a terrible war. We have to understand that. Israel lost 2,600 soldiers, which doesn't sound like a lot in the United States, but it's a huge amount that's comparable to 100,000 that we would lose here. Within the first few days of the war, they knew it was coming, but they didn't know the exact time. So from that point of view, they were taken by surprise. The equipment wasn't all ready. And everybody lost somebody they loved, you know, a son, a husband, a friend. And so Golda was very much held accountable for that. The negative stuff about Golda in Israel she was reelected after the Yom Kippur War. It started later. It started in the 1980s after she was dead. And many of the men who had worked for her as young men, you know, they were men who were very filled with themselves or very competent. They didn't love working for a woman. There were very few other men who worked for women. So after she died, they began writing a lot of negative things about her. And that continued. And to this day, there are still whole bodies of people who have negative things to say, but I do think it's changing somewhat. Now, in the United States, she was always seen as one of us. She was one of our people. She grew up here. She was an American kid, as it were. Talk a little bit about wrestling with the decision of, to go after the perpetrators of Munich. It was a very difficult decision. Let me say this first, because I did speak to Tzvi Zamir quite a number of times. One of the things that was going on was the terrorists were wandering around Europe freely, and countries were giving in to them. Israel's policy was you don't negotiate with terrorists. Other countries didn't have that policy. I mean, Germany itself gave in to them and did negotiate. They wanted to free their hostages. This was a little bit later. So there was this understanding, and Tzvi said that very strongly, that Israel had to do something. Golda was very, very concerned about targeting assassinations, not because she was an ambi-pambi or had great sympathy for any of these terrorists. She was concerned that what if our boys get caught? What if something happens on foreign soil? And it did later. They targeted the wrong person at one point in Norway. And her other concern was a moral one. She said to Tzvi, how does this make us different from them if we kill people without trial? But there was such anguish about what had happened. 
and such anger. And the fact that, that it had happened uh, finally convinced her that they sort of brought this on themselves. That was her rationale. And even then, as Sri told me, they would bring a case, he and the others, to her, a person that they targeted as somebody who should be assassinated. And sometimes she wouldn't even say yes or no. She would kind of just nod her head or just make a gesture, and they understood that wasn't okay. Sometimes she would ask them to investigate again, to make sure this was really the right person. And sometimes that investigation went on for months or even years. But in the end, she felt it was justified. Critics will say part of this was also she was facing an election against Menachem Begin, who was always vigilant that is the Israeli leadership doing enough to defend Jews around the world. And as you point out, she cared very deeply about that. Do you think domestic politics had a role in this decision? I'm not a politician, but I think politics had a role in every decision that Golda or any politician made. And Begin was breathing down her neck and very critical of her. Yet, I think that the decision was more, we have to show the world. I mean, how did the world respond? Look at Nixon. Nixon and Kissinger were meeting, right, when this happened. And Nixon is saying, well, you know, those Israelis, those Jews, they're always trying to be so tough. The good thing would be if she told them to go on with the games. Picture this country grieving. Their athletes have been slaughtered in this horrible way on television that the world could see. And Kissinger is agreeing with him. She had to respond in a very forceful way. The world had to know that this cannot happen, that this has to be stopped in some way. Thank you so much. You really opened up a whole window to the world of Golda Meir for us and for our listeners. And I just can't thank you enough. Thank you. It was my pleasure. It was great to speak with you. Here to talk about Golda Meir in the aftermath of the Munich massacre is Ronan Bergman. Ronan Bergman is a senior correspondent for military and intelligence affairs at the Israeli daily Yidiot Achronot. He's also on staff with the New York Times, dealing with intelligence matters. And he's the author of the 2018 best-selling book, Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations, which has been purchased also for a possible movie production with HBO. I must say, having read the book, it reads like a thriller, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy reading it. Thank you, uh, David, for inviting me. So, Ronen, Munich, of course, shocked the world, given the way it played out in the 1972 Olympics with the entire world watching. Yet for Golda Meir in Israel, it had a special dimension. So please explain for us how that the attack taking place in Germany and the bungled German response conveyed by the head of the Mossad, Svi Zamir, to Golda Meir, how this impacted the way Golda and Israel viewed the Munich massacre. We need to put things in perspective and understand the background. One of the, the important things, the Palestinian covenant at that time said that all Jews that came to Israel after 1917 and their descendants, I mean, all the Jews, should be expelled. The PLO, Yasser Arafat, and his deputies figured out that they are going to gain more if they take it global. So they started to hijack airplanes. They started to hit Western Jewish and Israeli targets, many of them in Europe. And the Mossad, who is in charge, the Israeli Foreign Intelligence Agency, also took the struggle against the PLO to Europe, trying to defend 
Israeli embassies, the Jewish agency offices, Jews all everywhere. But they faced a, a difficulty. They had a very good understanding of how the PLO works and a very good human infiltration. But when they brought this sort of information to the European intelligence services and law enforcement agencies, they were faced with some sort of a nonchalant attitude. And people of the Mossad came to Golda Meir and said, Mrs. Prime Minister, please allow us not to satisfy ourselves with supplying the European intelligence services with this information. Because they do nothing. They want to remain allegedly neutral to the Middle East dispute to the Israeli-Palestinian struggle and do nothing. But instead, they said, please allow us. We know who is behind that. We know where are the offices. Sometimes the PLO offices in Europe are overt, like they are just there and were even recognized by some of these countries. Let us work against them. Let us bomb them. Let us kill them in Europe. And they have been preaching that to Golda Meir since she took over in 1969. And she refused. She said, no, I do not give you permission. Stand down. You do not go into any kind of aggressive actions in Europe because these countries who are in general very friendly towards Israel, and some of them are conducting a very friendly relations with Mossad. These are sovereign countries. And the Mossad, respecting the order from the Supreme Commander, the Prime Minister, they did nothing. But they decided to establish a special unit called Bayonet, Kidon, that would stand by, do nothing except for be ready in case Prime Minister Golda Meir will give them the permission. And the chief of the Mossad at that time, Svizomir, negotiated or had a conversation with Mike Harari, who is the legendary commander of special operations of Mossad, they said there will be a time when she will change her mind. And then came Munich. And Svizomir reported, first he gave these two sessions where he updated the cabinet and Golda on what happened, I think were one of the most dramatic and important ever given updates on national security, it changed the Israeli perspective. At the first stage of the crisis, when I saw the athletes cuffed to each other, again, Jews cuffed and under the threat of rifles, walking on German land, being taken to the buses, then to the terminal, this had an effect on the cabinet. There was no one, I think, then in the cabinet who didn't lose member of his family, any relative in the Holocaust. Some of them were Holocaust survivors themselves. But what was the most important thing was when he elaborated on the huge fiasco, the unbelievable negligence with which first the Germans failed to protect the Israelis at Canoli Street, where their dormitories were. There were 12,000 German policemen guarding the campus, and no one of them had a gun, only a few of them, because they didn't want the world to remind itself with the context of Germany and Germans with weapons. So there was no effective protection. And the things that happened after the kidnapping was revealed, according to his report, the Germans SWAT team, special armored vehicles, failed to arrive to the scene. They were stuck in some sort of a traffic jam. Some of the members of the SWAT team conveyed just a few minutes before the operation started and decided that they are not going to participate because they don't want to sacrifice themselves for Jewish athletes. 
The only thing they cared about was to continue the, the Olympic Games. You write in the book, quote, Israel could not depend on other countries to protect its citizens, so it must do so itself. Rather than defer to any nation's sovereignty, Israel would now kill people wherever and whenever they reach the conclusion that it was necessary. This conclusion takes Israeli counterterrorism policy in a whole new direction. And is it fair to say that it was a turning point to this very day? Yes. This is the main change that happened after these, these cabinet meetings and the, the main secret but important decision that they took. Golda and the cabinet decided that they are not going to limit Mossad to kill Palestinian terrorists only in the Middle East. They will do that wherever and whenever they have in on-site Palestinian terrorists, and they will attribute very little importance to the sovereignty of the countries where it happens. This was a profound change that led to a series of targeted killing of assassinations in the two years following that, and it changed the whole perspective of Israel's national security, counterterrorism policy, and Israel's attitude towards assassinations. So until then, there were targeted killings, but it was confined to the Middle East itself. Yeah. When you speak about targeted killing and the use of that weapon by a democratic state, there are two questions to be asked. One, is legally and morally justified? And the second, is it effective? Is the world a better place the next day, better place for Israelis and for Jews? And I give the example of the Mossad campaign after Munich as an example of at least one case where targeted killings are indeed effective. Because once Mossad started to kill Palestinian terrorists or those connected to the PLO in Europe, the chief of the PLO, Yasser Arafat, and his deputy for operations, Khalil al-Wazir, Abu Jihad, reached a conclusion, it's not worthwhile, that they are losing people in Europe, while at the same time, the fact that they are operating there is damaging their prestige and their goal. And they decided for many years to regroup to the Middle East where it was much easier for Mossad and Israeli intelligence to take care of it. And also say something about the process. You alluded to it. Golda had a group of cabinet ministers. Whenever Tzvi Zamir and Kidon Bayonet brought a name for meeting, you even note that she brought the Minister of Religious Affairs, too, to give it a kind of a moral imprimatur. So just take us through the implementation of this decision. From the cabinet confirming Mossad, authorizing Mossad to kill people in Europe and Bayonet being put into action, Bayonet relocated most of its operatives to Europe and started to figure out who are the main targets. This is another myth. Most of the targets were not connected to Munich whatsoever. They were connected to the PLO, but they were not connected to, to Munich. And then there's ongoing discussion. What is the legitimate target? People who say a legitimate target is only someone who is connected directly to a specific corporation and has, as they say, Jewish blood on his hand. But others, including the many of the Mossad personnel that I have interviewed for Rise and Kill, have said, we don't care. I mean, the attempt to separate between the so-called military wing and the so-called political wing of the PLO was done by the PLO in order to make parts of the PLO legitimate in the eyes of the world. So once Golda was given the names, Golda didn't want to make a decision by herself. She wanted to have other ministers involved, and she brought Minister of Defense, Moshe Dayan, 
And also, as you said, she, she wanted to have some sort of a religious legal involvement, and she brought the Minister of Religious, uh, Zera Bahabdi. And once the ministers authorized, and as far as I know, they authorized everything that Mossad proposed, it was back to the Mossad to conduct the operation. And they continued to do that. The operations were successful. The people that were identified were killed, and the operations ended with the fiasco in Lillhammer when the Mossad did the serious mistakes that led to the misidentification who they thought was the uh, operation uh, commander for Black September, Ali Hassan Salameh. They thought that someone else, a Moroccan uh, cool uh, employee called uh, Bushiki, was Ali Hassan Salameh. They killed him, but this was not the end of the mistake. They did a lot of other logistical and, and operational mistakes that led the Norwegian authorities to capture Many of the operatives put them on trial, exposing much of the, the network, the secret Mossad network in Europe, leading to major embarrassment to Israel and the cessation of the assassination or the targeted killing campaign of it. So if you were to say, Ronan, how many of these 14 were connected with Munich and how many were not? And also the time period, is Lilyhammer the end of this, the failure there? Is that the end of this wave, would you say? Well, Lilhammer is the end of that campaign. They resume assassinations in 1978 when Mossad killed Wadi who was the uh, Russian uh, genius, devil, diabolic commander for the uh, Popular Front. And then in 1979, Mossad killed uh, the same unit in Mossad. Bayonet closed that circle and killed Ali Hassan Salami, the real one, in Beirut. To your first question, how many people were involved in Munich? This is a question still under under debate, whether Ali Hassan Salami were, was or was not involved in Munich. The person who was in charge of, the direct commander of the Munich massacre, Abu Daoud, Mahmoud Odin, said that he was fully in charge and that Ali Hassan Salami was not involved. At the end of the day, the only person that Mossad did kill, it was directly involved, or maybe directly involved, was Ali Hassan Salami. But you're saying of the 14 people killed, 13 were not connected to Munich. I'm saying all the 14 were not connected to to Munich, except for one, which is one of the the people that were killed in Beirut. According to some evidence, it was indirectly involved. But it was not a revenge operation. This is one of the, the myths that were created afterwards, as if Mossad was going into some sort of a retaliation campaign to kill the people behind Munich. This is not true. It's not that they didn't want to. They couldn't get to these people, and they wanted to stop the Palestinian operations in Europe. This was their main aim, not to take revenge on Munich. They were looking towards the future, not towards the past. Well, this is fascinating, and I think uh, listening to you, Ronan, people are going to want to read your book. And I really think that you've added a lot to our understanding of Munich and its aftermath. The book is called, again, Rise and Kill First, The Secret History of Israel's Targeted Assassinations. Ronan Bergman, thank you very much. Thank you, David. Thank you. And uh, enjoy your day. Be safe and healthy. So I have two takeaways from the talks with Francine and Ronan. One is, it's fascinating how people outside of Israel remember Golda Meir. And Israelis, I know, from my own experience, remember her another way. 
people outside of Israel recall the fact that here was an older woman who led a country, and that was definitely a novelty then, and it would be still today. She captivated the world with her straightforward style and defense of her people. And many American Jews identified with her dual upbringing in Eastern Europe and in the U.S. And I think we heard from Francine just how Golda was such a captivating figure in this regard. Israelis tend to see her through the prism of the 1973 war and that enduring trauma. The second takeaway, what's clear, is that almost all the follow-on attacks were really not related to Munich but were done to deter future attacks. According to Ronen, this led to Yasser Arafat and his deputy Abu Jihad to make a decision that there should be no more attacks from Europe. And indeed, the attacks became only limited to the Middle East. So we let others judge, but I think it's fair to say, listening to Francine and Ronen, that Munich was one of the defining elements of Golda Meir's legacy, and she was certainly at the center of this major decision point. Thank you all very much for listening. Please go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review Decision Points. And please tell your friends. I've also recently published a book co-authored with Ambassador Dennis Ross on four key Israeli leaders called Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leaders Shaped Its Destiny. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Our coordinator, Basha Rosenbaum, researcher, Scott Boxer, Jeff Rubin, Scott Rogers, and Carolina Krauskopf of the Washington Institute, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, and Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive. Thank you all.